The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he would send the crowds away. After sending the crowds away, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone while the boat, by now far out on the lake, was battling a heavy sea for there was a headwind. In the fourth watch of the night, he went towards them, walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It is a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But at once, Jesus called out to them, saying, Courage, it is I, do not be afraid. It was Peter who answered, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you across the water. Come, said Jesus. Then Peter got out of the boat and started walking towards Jesus across the water. But as soon as he felt the force of the wind, he took fright and began to sink. Lord, save me, he cried. Jesus put out his hand at once and held him. Man of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? As soon as they got into the boat, the wind dropped. The men in the boat bowed down before him and said, truly, you are the Son of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So in the context of vocation that we've just spoken about, I don't want to speak too much about vocation right now, but it's a good context to ground ourselves in. God calls us to holiness, which means to, to be utterly submerged in his own divine life. All of us, nothing gets left behind out of us, except, of course, our sin, which isn't actually part of us. <laughs> you know, sin is not an intrinsic part of humanity. It's a kind of add-on that we invented and we don't need it, and God doesn't want us to have it. Um, but all that is essential to us is drawn into the divine life, and that's, that's holiness in a nutshell, uh, this kind of long process, depending on how much of a fight we put up. That's the universal call. That's the vocation of every soul everywhere. If someone exists, that's why. <laughs> then there's the states of life, priesthood, married life, um, single generous life in Christ, and the religious life. And then there's the particularities of the day-to-day -day in those states of life, because God is calling us to little things all the time, isn't he? Be patient with those people. Be courageous in that situation. Be you know, courteous or speak a word of truth or whatever. God... God Vocation is constantly um, budding forth in these little ways. I want to ask, though, and the scriptures give us these powerful images in, in, to answer the question, but if vocation is about hearing God speak, how do we do that? Like, what do you do to hear God? You can make deliberate moves to do that, can't you? You're not just left to the randomness of whether or not God does something because God has done something and God is doing something. So what do you do in response? How do you put yourself in a better place, so to speak, to hear God? Quiet. Quiet? Yeah, good. In my garden, I call on God. Yeah, lovely. Okay, in the garden. That's great. In the quietness of the countryside. Okay. Yeah, right. Yeah, you gotta set time aside, don't you? You have to. You've got to make it a, a kind of 
something that deliberately punctures your day. Just like food. Like if we left it up to chance, we might become famished, you know? We just won't make the time to eat and the day goes on and suddenly we're skin and bones. Um, but we punctuate our day with sensible, you know, regular patterns of eating and sleeping and hopefully praying as well. Silent time. Um, the two images given to us in the first reading end in the gospel. And there was a beautiful thing in the second reading as well that I might mention, if, if depending on how long we take here. But there's two beautiful allegories for faith life in general. Um, one of them is, is sort of obvious, you know, and you've all already picked up on it. If we want to hear God, we're going to have to cordon off some quiet time because in the regular busyness of the day, God sort of just get, gets buried. <laughs> um, and le- unless God wants to burst forth in a kind of dramatic fashion, chances are we'll just plot on as we were. And, and God allows that to happen, but, but, but every so often God calls us away from that to, to retreat literally to, to be alone with him. Jesus himself did it in the Gospels. Elijah does it as well. They do it for different reasons, though. Elijah is spent. Elijah is, like, fatigued. You know, he's, he's really at the end of his rope. Um, he's just had a victory, really, even though he's still without hope after it. He's had a victory over the, the Baals and the, and the false priests in um, Israel. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's just before that that he, he called down the fire, wasn't it? I think it was. Called down the fire from heaven, which consumed the, the Israelite sacrifice. So he proved in a, in a kind of dramatic way. It's, it's ironic, isn't it? Like just moments before, God did have a dramatic manifestation. Fire from heaven consumed this, um, this offering. But, but then even in spite of that, he runs away into the cave um, to encounter God. And, and here's the allegory that all of us have picked up on. All of the big cacophonous distractions was not in fact the presence of God for Elijah in that moment. The wind shredding the mountain, the earthquake, the fire bursting forth. It says God was not in there. And, it, and it's, it's curious, like we have a sense of what sacramentality is. We know that God is speaking through everything potentially. Nothing is off limits for God to reach out to us. But curiously, the gospel, the, the reading makes it even more stark. It says, it doesn't even say God was not the fire, which we know because we're not pantheists. But it even said God was not in the fire. In other words, God was not wanting to speak through that medium at that time. God can, God wasn't. That's really good to note because we sometimes we can over-sacramentalize stuff. It's like, yeah... Um, God speaks to me in the peace of the garden. Therefore, I only want to be there and I don't want to go to church or I don't want to read my scripture or I don't want to talk to you know, someone who's going to hold me accountable. And it's like, yeah, well, God is everywhere, but maybe you're avoiding God by going there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, maybe you're trying to be even more alone than alone with God. You just want to be alone with yourself. If that's the case, then, then okay. You know, we all feel that feeling from time to time. But let's be honest here. Where is God trying to co- encounter you? Maybe it's not in, um, in those kinds of places at a, at a given time. So it says God is not in there. But then there's a challenge. It says God was in the last sort of nothing event. The translation we heard, I think it said the quiet breeze or something. That's right. One translation said 
he was in a still, a thin silence. A thin silence. Think about that. That's about as subtle as you can get. It's like the silence is deafening. And, and the sheer weighty presence of God is sort of evident, even though there's no, there's no sense, there's no sort of sensory data to take in, but just a, just a, um, a very confronting reality. And you think, okay, well, now I'm in the presence of the divine other. Uh, I better, you know, like Moses, kind of take off my shoes and just ready myself for what's going to happen. And, and God questions him. He says, Elijah, why are you here? You know, you need to be back down there. It's almost like the transfiguration. He calls him back down the mountain again. Your mission is not finished yet. This is a challenge for us, though, because it's very tempting to want God to speak to us in ways that are, let's say, infallible. And the beauty is God actually does do that through the church. But, but aside from that, there's this temptation, like we've all heard people say, oh, if God wants me to know he's real, he should just write it in the sky. You know, <laughs> He should write me a message literally alongside the clouds, and I'll read it, and I'll know. And he's powerful and whatever, so he can do that. And it's like, yeah, but God is not obliged to speak to us in that kind of way. You know, God doesn't have to pander to our impatience and our, our criteria. Rather, we have to somehow come to him. So there's a mystery here whereby God encounters us in increasingly elusive ways, which means he almost thins out his presence as time goes on. He thins it out, thins it out. Um, he might sort of... Um, I don't know what the word, he, he might intensify it in order to kind of direct us again. But then he calls us beyond our senses. Because in the end, my prayer is not about um, kind of fleeting happiness and things like that. We might call that consolation, you know. Consolation comes in prayer, but so does desolation. Both, both sides of the, the, the spiritual, emotional feeling. So our prayer is not just a means to feel good. If it becomes that, God will probably start to thin out the good feeling because it's not about that. Um, our prayer is not just about getting instructions because if it just becomes that, God will start to thin out the instructions. Um, our prayer is not just about, I don't know, getting our, getting our requests because while God gives us what we ask, if he just becomes like a gigantic ATM, he will start to thin out his promptness to respond. Do you see what I'm saying? Because the point is not what God gives us. It's who God is. And, and who is God? What is God? Well, that's the mystery, isn't it? God is not another created thing. God is not really sensed in that way. God is, full stop. And therefore, the sheer otherness of God is really what we somehow need to start moving into which means we move past all the noise and all the clarity and all the um, tangibility and we move deeper and deeper into the silent black where God is in God's fullness, you know. Um, this is kind of the journey of the Trinity, by the way, like the Son and the Spirit proceed out to us, but then they draw us back to the Father who no one has ever seen except the Son. Um, on, on Tuesday, we're going to celebrate the Feast of the Assumption Mary's bodily being taken up into heaven. And in um, one of, I think it was 
the pious, one of his documents, Munificentissimus um, Deus, he, he talks about how Mary is assumed and she, it is fitting, like sh- we're all going to share in this in the fullness of time, God willing, but it's fitting that right now Mary is gazing at her son, sitting with the father in eternity. And she's looking at that with human eyes because that's like her human eyes are somewhere. <laughs> They're in heaven, she was assumed. So you think, holy moly, she's, she is sensing it uh, with her human senses, even though it's a divine reality, even though it, by definition, escapes our senses. Isn't that amazing? I think it's, I think it's absolutely astonishing. But this is, some of, this is some of what's at play here, is that God is inviting us past those basic ways of encountering him into a much more pervasive one. And that takes courage. And it takes patience and it takes really all the virtues because it's a difficult road he's calling us to, but it's a good one. The second allegory is in the gospel. And um, as it has been said by church commentators before, it's a good allegory of the church. Um, Mary's body is ascended and so is Jesus. You know, his, his literal flesh was, was ascended into heaven. Therefore, where is the body of Christ, where is Jesus? Well, we make up some of it. We're the members of his body, his mystical body. Um, We gather around the sacraments, particularly, obviously, the body and blood, which is, yes, his body. But then the head of that body is ascended into heaven. So imagine that we, the church, are this big kind of, you know, wet clay molding of people and we're standing upright and our head, which is Christ, has already penetrated the heavens, you know? Which means, in a certain sense, all of us have got a foot, a foot in heaven. Uh, it's not really our foot, it's, it's our head, it's Jesus. But, um, but that's where the Lord is. And we see it in today's gospel. You know, he's up on the mountaintop. What's he doing? He didn't run away like Elijah did. He wasn't there for fear or... Uh, he wasn't there for his own sake. He was there for the sake of his body. He's up there praying for the disciples in the boat. They're they're following his commandments, really. He said, go out there. So there they are, and they're struggling, as oftentimes we struggle, don't we? It would be nice to have Jesus literally in our boat while we're going through the struggles. But he's not there in that way. He's there in a different way. He's overseeing the whole thing. Um, he's praying, he's, he's blessing, he's watching, he's keenly, keenly attentive, and he's got a far more panoramic view of what's going on than we do. Therefore, even though he's not tangibly, concre- concretely present in the ways we might like, we can still trust him. He's still at the helm, you know? And, and if, you know, things do go south, he's happy to come down and intervene, which, which he does. That's a powerful allegory for us as members of this missioning people, this pilgrim people. But I think it extends to you and your own families as well. Because when was the last time you literally had your young ones, you know, under your wings? Well, it might have been quite a while. But you are still blessing and walking with them wherever they are. Your loved ones who've gone before you, even if they've gone to heaven, even if they've gone beyond the veil of this life. There's a, there's a relation between the mountaintop and the, and the lake that really can't be... Like, that, that gap is easily 
um, covered by Christ and therefore it's easily covered by you in Christ. That's a pretty consoling thought, you know. No one is really out of reach for us as praying people um, and neither are we out of reach of their prayers. Um, I might leave it there because I was going to say something about, about that image. I may as well say it now that I've started saying it. Um, Paul, Paul says, um, basically, I'd rather be cut off from the body of Christ than to see, than to see the, the members among me go, go astray, go to hell. And I think that's powerful because it's a repetition of Moses, isn't it? It, it only struck me this morning when I was hearing it proclaimed. But Moses was a mediator for the people. And he was walking with them and he was guiding them and he was admonishing them and he was frustrated with them. But, but he was faithful for the most part. Um, but his mission ended prior to their reaching their destination. God said, you're going to go up another particular mountain, Mount Nebo, and you're going to look over the horizon and there's the land that you've been journeying towards. But you yourself will not go there. You will die prior to your people going there. Moses suffered a kind of early martyrdom in that sense. You know, like, imagine leading this gigantic pilgrimage and then saying, okay, now you run ahead and, and I'll, be, I'll be just behind you, you know? Like, uh, go on. Well, this is, this is a kind of salvific thing to do. Like, this is what Jesus is constantly doing through, through us and our loved ones and, and personally himself. Think of the amount of saints who have even been excommunicated during the course of their lives, you know, like the church has not understood or they have not understood or, or whatever. There's, somehow there's been like a weird rupture where they've said, fine, <laughs> you guys run ahead, but I'm gonna, I have to stay here right now. Like our own Mary McKillop was excommunicated twice, more than, I think more than once. And you think, far out, that's a big sacrifice to make in faith. You, you have faith that, okay, God... Like, I'm trying to be as faithful as I can here, and I'm just trusting that this is going to go well. Because, because I would rather see the whole people enter into glory than to try and anxiously safeguard it for myself. That's a kind of pretty, pretty, pretty crazy thing, I think. Um, it tells us, I think, at the very least, that when we gather here, we're not primarily here for ourselves, even though, of course, we are. We're here to pray for our own particular concerns, of course. But in a weird way, I'd suggest we're more here for each other right now to press each other up against the person of Jesus. You know, every so often, um, there's no necessity even for us to receive communion because the point of coming here is to join ourselves to the sacrifice of Christ, which means, you know, let's say I'm a sad you know, person who thinks, oh, I can't receive communion today. Well, that's, in a sense, it's beside the point. It's like, yeah, okay, but right now you can press us all and you yourself get dragged with it. You can press us all into the, into the salvific work of Jesus, which really does something. It really does something for us. It really does something for the world. So let's simply share in all of that as we have our tiny little mountaintop experience right now. Jesus is with us always, uh, even beyond all of our senses and even till the end of time.